The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Joining us now is Nathan Sheets, Chief Economist for PGM Fixed Income, helping to manage more than $700 billion. They are based in Newark, New Jersey. He joins us here in studio. Nathan Sheets, thank you very much for being here. Maybe you could just give us your reaction to yesterday's Federal Reserve activity and what you think the Fed will do in 2019. So uh, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be uh, with you this morning. Uh, the Fed uh, took a careful look at the U.S. economy, and I think on the one hand, they say, well, the consumer looks pretty good, and uh, the unemployment rate in the labor market, they're looking pretty good, and there's ongoing fiscal stimulus. So the near-term growth look, outlook is, 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 is pretty solid. Now, at the same time, they also see a housing market that's softening and a, a substantial increase in market volatility and concerns in financial markets about the medium to long run outlook. And consistent with that, the Fed notched down its expectations as to what it would need to do for monetary policy and the number of rate hikes next year. And, uh, you know, I think uh, most likely they'll uh, do what they're suggesting in the dots. So I'm prepared and expecting a couple of uh, a couple of rate hikes next year. But the Fed will be very data dependent. They'll look and see uh, where the economy is and whether things are evolving as well as uh, they think they will. You know, the focus really after the press conference was on the balance sheet and the fact that Fed Chair Powell seemed to dismiss concerns that a roll off of the four trillion dollar Federal Reserve balance sheet was having a disproportionate effect on markets now. He seemed to say, you know what, this has been put on a preset course, we're fine with it, and we're going to just focus on rate hikes. Is he wrong? Is he too sanguine about the effect here? So uh, certainly there have been pressures at the short end of the yield curve uh, this year. And my reading is that Bill's issuance and some of the uh, after effects of uh, of uh, the tax uh, reform are at work. But I think the fact that uh, bank reserves in the system are steadily falling and likely to continue to fall uh, are also uh, a factor. But I think what we're seeing here is the Federal Reserve has meaningful political incentives to try to get the balance sheet down to the three trillion dollar range that uh, that Jay Powell uh, told Congress. Wait, hold on a second. Three trillion dollars. If we found that out, that would be news. If he confirmed that that was their end target, that would actually be even more hawkish for markets. So I think that they want to get as close to that as they can 
without creating disruptions in that market. Now, in order to, to, to continue to lean into it, I think he's got to, for now, say we're going to continue to reduce the balance sheet. Now, as 2019 unfolds, I'd expect there will be a conversation. But the make no mistake, a big balance sheet is a political risk for the Federal Reserve. I think they're very worried about an interview with the Senate Banking Committee where, they say, there's a trillion and a half dollars uh, uh, of bank reserves out there and the Fed funds rate is at 3%. And the members of the committee are saying, Mr. Chairman, why are you paying the U.S. banks $45 billion a year? That's money out of the, the pocket of the U.S. taxpayer. That's the, that's the downside with the big balance sheet. Is there a downside that we enter a period of even greater dollar shortage because of the way that the Federal Reserve is unwinding the balance sheet? Uh, and that is what they're monitoring. So far, the Federal Reserve is kind of uh, pointing at and say, don't look at us. Look at the Treasury because of the fiscal situation and the bills issuance. But I think uh, during 2019, uh, we're likely to see some further stresses. And I think ultimately, just to be clear, I think they'd like to get to three. I don't think they're going to be able to get back all the way. And there will be a discussion of this uh, as markets feel some continued pressures at the short end of the curve in the year ahead. You know, it's. I love that you have the experience at the Federal Reserve. Uh, you also have incredible experience at the Treasury Department. You are the Undersecretary of the U.S. Treasury for International Affairs, and that is very much in the fore, especially as we were just hearing about the uh, prosecutors going after hackers in China. I just want to read this quote. Uh, FedEx Chief Executive Officer Fred Smith saying, most of the issues that we're dealing with today are induced by bad political choices. Do you think that the economy is slowing to the degree that it is because of bad political choices. When I look at the global economy and I think about headwinds that it faces, I mean, trade war has got to be number one on the list. And that is a discrete political choice. I think it's increasing uncertainty. It's likely weighing on investment in the United States and probably uh, abroad as well. Um, I think Brexit is weighing on the outlook. And that's a different kind of political choice, but very much a political choice. And you could go around the world and point to other examples. What's going on in France? What's the uncertainties and risks in Italy? Uh, the in the emerging markets, uh, the new uh, the new administration in Mexico, and there's a you know it's it, it remains uncertain as to what an AMLO government's going to do, but there's more uncertainty there than uh, has been the case in the past. So I very much agree these geopolitical risks, these these political decisions, some made by those elected, and others, quite frankly reflecting the outcomes of elections. And I think that's a very important point, is that what we're seeing in some of this is the discontent of the body politic. In many countries, there are many people that are saying, the global economy isn't working for me the way I expect it to. So just give you about 20 seconds. I know it's tough to do this. What would be the investment position you want to assume going into 2019? So, uh, on the one hand, I think we have to bear in mind that there is a strong there is a strong case for that kind of baseline view that the Fed has articulated that the U.S. economy will be slower next year. 
but by the same token, you've got to hedge against uh, you've got to hedge against these kinds of extraordinary tail risks. Nathan uh-huh. Sheets, it's always a pleasure having you here. Thank you so much for being here. Nathan Sheets, chief economist for PGM Fixed Income, uh, which oversees more than seven hundred billion dollars in Newark, New Jersey, formerly of the Fed and the Treasury Department, uniquely positioned to talk about the t- the current environment. We were just hearing from FBI Director Christopher Wray. Before that, we had heard from U.S. Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. Uh, some pretty, pretty dramatic language there, accusing state-sponsored uh, actors in China of hacking into uh, corporate and state, frankly, uh, yeah, U.S. agencies, use, use U.S. agencies, uh, including some military agencies, U.S. Navy, um, and you know, basically, one of the most interesting parts of their words was when they. I really tried to emphasize that they are working shoulder to shoulder with American allies. It's not just the U.S. unilaterally going after Chinese state-sponsored bad actors that are hacking into and stealing uh, information from corporations and governments, uh, but that other nations are working with them. Uh, really uh, strong language and really highlights a broad-based, multi-year, multifaceted attempt to break in to, to, to U.S. Uh, companies and Yes, uh, they spoke specifically about uh, the increased enforcement activity that would be necessary, uh, oversight for mergers and acquisitions, as well as how to protect our own telecommunications infrastructure. I want to bring in Rob Lefferts, Microsoft's Corporate Vice President of Security. Uh, Rob, we're so glad to have you today, especially given uh, given this news. Understanding that you don't necessarily know the details of this particular indictment that was just unsealed uh, moments ago, Does it come as a surprise to you that state-sponsored activity from China hacking into U.S. entities is as widespread as they were making it out to be? Well, without making a specific comment about China, it unfortunately does not come as a surprise at all. This kind of activity is ongoing, uh, and there are many organizations, some state-sponsored, some purely criminal, who spend a great deal of time and investment to break into companies' uh, cyber infrastructure. And so that means if you have a company today, you had, need to have a really modern security stance thinking about how are you going to protect yourself and how are you going to detect when these kinds of cyber criminals and experts break into your organization. Does that expertise mean something different in a world where companies are migrating much of their data and operations to the cloud? It does. And uh, in some ways, this actually creates an opportunity because we're able to bring more cloud technology to bear to actually provide more sophisticated protection. It just opens up new fields like machine learning where we can really monitor a lot more of what's going on and be faster to detect and respond. I gotta say, I, especially when you think back at um, what was the uh, the the hotel chain, that, Marriott, Marriott hotel. that they a breach of with, about right. half a billion user. Right, but it yeah, happened over years, and it yeah. makes me think that just sort of the detection is is part of the issue. It's hard to detect this it, stuff. It's critical detect, and uh, this actually gets back into uh, a, a conservative old school security stance. Would say I'm going to build castle walls around my organization and make sure that nobody ever gets in. 
The sad truth is people will get in, and so a modern stance says I acknowledge that, and I am ready to detect them how and when it happens. In the Marriott case, I, I heard, I wasn't directly involved, that they were there in the network for four years. And so having modern tools like Microsoft Threat Protection is actually the way to think about how am I going to be more alert and watching the whole ocean of behaviors going on in my environment. One of the uh, focus, uh, focuses that uh, Christopher Ray, FBI director, uh, mentioned has to do with who are the people behind these attacks. He mentioned hackers, yep. uh, perhaps business people in China or around the world that may be working on behalf of uh, Chinese uh, state-sponsored entities. But he also mentioned the co-opting of employees at the very companies whose secrets are being targeted. Uh, based on your experience, what kinds of procedures or what kinds of activity can companies do in order to forestall that? There's two things you really need to think about. One is at the hiring time, when you need to think about how do I screen and monitor employees in a way that respects privacy. And that's honestly hard for all companies to do. It is something that cloud companies like Microsoft can do in a more robust way. The second thing is you also need tools that watch what goes on in your network, what employees are doing. Are they trying to gain access to servers and data that they wouldn't normally use as part of their day job? As far as Microsoft's effort to secure uh, the networks of the various uh, customers, one of the, the uh, Rod Rosenstein mentioned that it was managed service providers. And I'm wondering if you could just sort of expand on what technically that means, because he said that this was something that is not just about the United States. This is throughout the world now. Well, I'm honestly not sure exactly what he meant by that phrase, because it is a phrase that could be used to apply to a number of different things. But the one comment that I will make is that for a modern organization, there's lots of moments in the life of your digital data as it flows through a network, as it's stored in some service, maybe even if one of your employees puts it out on the public internet. And having a big picture about all of that, not just what happens to laptops and file servers, is a huge challenge and a lot of complexity. Uh, the other point I'd like to get across is uh, he talked about the sophistication of the attackers. And they are very sophisticated and moving quickly. And this is a space where you need to make sure that you're taking advantage of good guys and defenders who are just as focused on moving quickly and tracking what they do. That was actually exactly where I was going to head, which is talent and the difficulty finding the people who can move just as quickly. How, you know, how difficult is that for you? Well, across the globe, finding great cybersecurity talent is a crisis. Uh, and every time I hear a statistic about it, the numbers seem worse. I think the last one that I heard was by 2021, the planet will be short uh, 3.5 million security professionals. They'll have that many more jobs than people who can capably fill them. And so as we think about that, we think about having a pool of incredibly talented researchers at Microsoft and then using tools like machine learning and the power of the cloud to bring those talents to bear to help companies around the planet and to help governments around the planet. Which countries are producing the most cybersecurity professionals who are the best? Uh, it's pretty distributed. Uh, I, I will say the United States has some great programs and we work with research organizations there. England, 
Israel happens to have a lot of cybersecurity talent. Uh, and in places where you find bad guys, you also find the potential for talent that wants to help and do the right thing. Just to put it into perspective, according to your notes, 30 million attempts on average a day to log into Microsoft accounts by adversaries. 30 million a day. Yeah. That's a lot. You can't handle those one by one. You need, you, need, you need machines and tools that help handle that for you. One thing that I'm wondering, uh, passwords. Yes. Password security. I mean, part of the problem with password security is that it can become so secure that you don't remember any of your own passwords, and then it just becomes a huge mess. What's, what's, sort of the, what, what's the progression here? Yeah, let, uh, passwords are bad for the planet. <laughs> like, let's be clear. People can't remember them. They can't keep let's them up Let's be clear. <laughs> they, Fossil fuels and passwords. Yeah, it is true that uh, continuing to use passwords is uh, the easiest way for any organization to get in. I don't know how these attacks were carried on, but over 85% of the attacks on any organization are very simple. I'm going to trick you into giving away your password, and then I'm just going to log in and do a whole bunch of bad stuff on your behalf. Uh, and so getting people away from passwords where they log in using more than one thing at a time, so use your phone and a password, or even better, get away from passwords altogether, where you just log in with your phone and biometrics on your phone, and that's registered to you. You didn't have to remember your password, and not only is your experience better, but under the covers, it was way more secure. Is it hackable? Everything is hackable. Everything. <laughs> Everything is hackable. What if you cut off someone's finger and stick it on there? I mean, well, I meant once once the information is is stored in in some kind of device. Uh, so the most of the techniques for biometrics keep those biometrics on the device. That's true for Windows Hello. So you'd have to have that laptop and the finger. <laughs> so anything is doable, but that's pretty hard. <laughs> One thing that I'm wondering is how well prepared do you think that American corporations are against hacking? They are not very well prepared. I mean, is it, is it sort of, would we be shocked if we knew how unprepared they were? Uh, we, the whole industry, and Microsoft as a responsible part of that industry, need to push a lot harder on making everything much more safe. Do you believe that it's going to take some kind of incident in order to wake people up in their individual industries? Those incidents are happening every day, <laughs> and we read about them. You talked about Marriott, if you just look back, Sony and Target. People Experian. Are, Experian. Uh, people are waking up, and there is a huge focus on this. I think that's why we talk about things like the huge demand for talented professionals to help. Thanks very much for being with us. Uh, Rob Lefferts, uh, appropriate you're here today. Rob Lefferts is Corporate Vice President of Security uh, for Microsoft, telling us about the efforts on behalf of uh, corporations and the U.S. government to secure our networks. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. 
President Trump did decide to pull troops out of Syria against the advice of some of his closest advisors, creating uh, something of a pushback from even some of his uh, staunchest Republican allies. Lindsey Graham writing, it is not fake news that Russia, Iran and Assad are unhappy about our decision to withdraw from Syria. They are ecstatic. This was via Twitter. Joining us now, Toby Harshaw, national security writer and editor for a Bloomberg Opinion, joining us here in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Uh, Toby, what do you make of this move? How do you interpret President Trump's decision to do this? Uh, There are a few explanations. The first is that this was simply a campaign promise um, that he's making good on. He, you know, he went against the advice, not just of the Pentagon, but also of John Bolton, his national security advisor, who had really been, you know, the voice in his ear on these issues before this. Um, in addition to that, I think that um, he he wants to be very careful about Turkey. Um, Turkey had said that uh, they will send troops in uh, to remove the Kurds who have been our allies, uh, the Syrian Democratic Forces. Uh, and I don't think that you know Trump wanted the possibility of two NATO allies getting in a shooting fight. Can you tell us the disposition of U.S. military assets in the Middle East? Um, I can't give you the exact disposition because uh, the Pentagon is not releasing um, the the breakdowns from how many troops are in which theater. That's a new thing that they're doing. Uh, actually, that's made a lot of members of Congress unhappy. Right. But we know that we have military assets in the United Arab Emirates, in Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, as well as in Oman, Kuwait, Jordan some in Israel, Iraq, Egypt, Djibouti, the list goes on. At what point does the effort on the military front just become a zero-sum game and the president says, we're not getting anything out of it, let's leave? Yeah, I mean, most of those uh, most of those troops are actually stationed there. I mean, uh, Qatar is where the giant air base is, Bahrain is where the giant naval base is. Those are permanent presences. Um, but yeah, we've got we've got troops well beyond Iraq and uh, and Syria. We've got them in North Africa. We've got them in Djibouti. Um, we've uh, yeah, at some point we have expanded too far. Um, this war is you know is based on legally on something Congress passed in 2001 that they've never updated uh, and and what we're doing goes way beyond the authority that the White House was given. One thing, there was a Bloomberg editorial uh, out today that I thought was really interesting talking about how this particular move is a little bit different because it comes as something of a rude shock and not a pleasant one for our allies. Yeah. Um, I mean, the Kurds are, you know, a ragtag militia that we've armed and trained. Um, they're, you know, not important on the global scale. But if we hang them out to dry, if we let either the Turks or the Syrians um, simply run over them, as the Turks have promised to bury them in the holes they have dug, um, that sends a signal to our bigger allies that the U.S. You know, doesn't have our back. And that's, you know, that plays right into the rhetoric that Trump has been using with our NATO allies and uh, our allies in, in the Far East, um, using, you know, threatening to, to pull away the security blanket um, unless they change their trade policies. Um, it's, a, it's a whole new level of uh, it's, a, it's an entirely different foreign policy. I think that's very, very scary to the Allies. And that's one reason that the French are talking about starting a European army. What has been the reaction, if any, so far from the Saudi Arabian government? 
Um, there hasn't really been one. Um, the Saudis are being very quiet uh, for obvious reasons. Um, the Saudis have, have helped in the coalition against ISIS, um, but not dramatically. In fact, the UAE, their very close uh, ally and neighbor, um, has been a far bigger part of it. Could some people say that that the impulse that President Trump uh, just sort of demonstrated is actually absolutely the right one, that we're not going to win. This is a messy kind of situation. It's unclear what our role there is. Why are we there? Um, well, we, the mission was to defeat ISIS. Um, defeating ISIS isn't something you can do entirely, um, but it's not true that, that they've been entirely defeated. They no longer hold any territory. They were forced out of Hajin, the last uh, city that they held. Um, but there's about 2,000 fighters probably who slipped away. They're, they're fighting in the little villages. Um, they're probably going to slip across the border into Iraq, where there are a lot of sleeper cells um, that have been carrying out uh, you know attacks and bombing attacks and kidnappings and things like that based on your reading of the situation and the relationship between the United States and Turkey a NATO ally do you think this will have any effect on Turkey's purchase of so of Russian made anti aircraft missiles. Yeah. Um, the Turks, right as this was happening, the Turks agreed on a $3.5 billion package to buy Patriot missiles from us. Um, the big problems with the S-400 were A, that it was giving money to the Russians, um, and B, that they are not compatible with uh, with NATO's hardware um, and, and couldn't be have been a part of that common defense. The Patriot missiles, which are American, obviously are. The difference is, is that Patriots are very short range, and the S-400, the Russian system, has much greater range. Uh, so the fear is that the Turks are going to go ahead and buy both. Thanks very much. Toby Harshaw, as always, expert when it comes to the world's national security, particularly the United States, our national security writer for Bloomberg Opinion. I encourage you to read his most recent column, Trump's Syria pullout is another grave mistake. Thank you very much for being with us. SpaceX's eighth and final Iridium next launch has been delayed until January 7th. And here to tell us all about the satellites that are circling the globe is none other than Matt Desch. He is the chief executive of Iridium Communications based in Washington, D.C. Matt Desch, thanks very much for being with us. Tell people about these Iridium next satellites. You've already got 65 of them in orbit and tell us how this is going to connect the world in a way that maybe people don't expect. For example, Internet of Things. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Good talking to you again. Um, we have spent the last two years getting our $3 billion network in orbit, and uh, we're within two and a half weeks now of completing it, which is pretty exciting uh, because it really will be a complete new network uh, that's much more powerful than the original network that we launched about 20 years ago. Uh, you, you know, the probably the most exciting new service that we've, that really has driven our growth over the last few years has been the Internet of Things. Um, a lot of people remember us as a satellite phone company, and we still sell those. That's a, that's a, a great business for emergencies and first responders and, and uh, adventurers and and that sort of thing, but the 
the primary growth really on the network or the number of subscribers is in connecting things, connecting trucks and trains and ships and buoys and oil and gas pipelines and all the things outside of cell phone coverage, which you know only only is about 10 to 15 percent of the world. Given that we cover 100 percent of the world, we're really the way to connect any of these things when they're outside cell phone coverage. Yeah. Matt, one thing that I find really compelling about your business is you take the sort of theoretical and sci-fi aspect of space exploration to a very concrete and earthly uh, place. I mean, the whole SpaceX, SpaceX launches, you've benefited from them, right? Well, you know, we kind of grew up at the same time, if you will. They, they're about... I don't know, 15 years old, and when we were looking 11, 12 years ago for a launcher, um, we couldn't really afford, frankly, the the uh, traditional launch vehicles that were out there. They had not changed much in 30 or 40 years, and I think the cheapest deal we got was over a billion dollars, which made it very difficult for us to consider replacing our network. And uh, along comes SpaceX with a lot of innovation and says we can offer it to you for almost half the cost or less than half the cost of what you're getting before and we took them up on it and uh, took us a few years to get our satellites ready but took them a few years to get ready as well and now we've had uh, seven successful launches together and we're going to have our eighth here in a few weeks. Now these satellites are in low earth orbit and they provide data services as well as voice service on the L band. Is there a financial change that has happened? In other words, how do you make money now versus in the past? Because you also host payloads for other companies, like you said, flight tracking services and maritime ship tracking businesses. Yeah, these new satellites are much more powerful than our old satellites, and they can do many more things than, uh, than we've been doing over the last 20 years. Uh, we've, we've been growing rapidly, really more on the data side as we've connected many things using using uh, the, the Internet of data, uh, Things technology. But with these new satellites, we're going to move into the broadband realm, being able to provide higher speed services on airplanes and ships and trains and that sort of thing um, faster really than anything in our frequency band has ever been able to do it before and much more global. Uh, the other new thing with these satellites is this, what we call a hosted payload. So we basically created a whole new business that's not communication-based, but takes some space on our satellites uh, and, in in our case, uh, helps track airplanes everywhere in the world. So we created a new business called Arion, uh, got some partners in the air traffic control world. Um, that's all been put together, and now, for the first time, with these new satellites, we're going to be able to see where every airplane is in the world in real time and relay that information to an air traffic controller so they yeah. can put it on a scope. And that's really, really powerful. Matt, how do you make money? Well, um, in the case of you know our communication business, every subscriber, of which we have over 1.1 billion, uh, 1.1 million of them, uh, you know, provides a uh, uh, you know, get service and provides money for the service each month, whether it's based upon the packets they use or the voice calls that they make. In the case of that new Arian facility, uh, new Arian service, uh, they actually pay us sort of a rental fee to use our satellite network. Uh, they pay us to bring back the positions of airplanes uh, in real time to those uh, controllers. 
and and we own a piece of that business, which is going to be quite valuable. So, um, you know, we're we're really kind of an innovation engine, you know, because nobody else has 66 satellites in low Earth orbit all connected to each other, and it's really not like any other satellite system. Um, and that's that's one of the reasons a lot of innovation and partners. We now have something like 430 partners today who are technology companies um, that have built us into their solutions for their customers, and they're the ones out selling us. It's nice because we sort of have a fixed-cost basis. Uh, Each new customer they bring to our network really falls to the bottom line, and that's why we've been growing and become so profitable over the last couple of years. Matt Desch, thank you so much for being with us. Matt Desch, Chief Executive Officer of Iridium Communications based in Washington, D.C. Uh, they use the SpaceX rockets, the reusable rockets, to get their satellites into space at lower costs, and they track all of our flights in real time and give us access to the internet, all sorts of things. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.